Welcome to Canadian Time Machine, a podcast that unpacks key milestones in our country's history. It's funded by the Government of Canada and created by the Walrus Lab. I'm Angela Misery. This episode is about the anniversary of the adoption of the Canadian Citizenship Act. Y'all, today is probably the most exciting day of my life, okay? Today is the day that... I officially become a Canadian citizen. That's Toronto-based content creator Lyndon Pope speaking to his viewers on YouTube just moments before attending his virtual citizenship ceremony. Oh my gosh, I don't know how to feel like it's been almost seven years I've been waiting for this day. Y'all have no idea. The amount of stress, everything that I went through from day one has led up to this day. If I tell y'all half of the things I have to go through to get here, (sighs) it'll take a couple of days because I went through a lot, okay? Let me just tell y'all how much crap I went through, but today makes it all worth it. I am so excited. Lyndon's ceremony took place in February, 2022, 75 years after the first Canadian citizenship ceremony took place. On January 3, 1947, former Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King was the first person to ever be granted citizenship under the Canadian Citizenship Act. Prior to this, Canadian settlers were considered British subjects under the Commonwealth. The Canadian Citizenship Act grants citizenship to all people born on Canadian soil. It also allows for residents born outside of Canada to become citizens through naturalization. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I swear. The act has also allowed for people from all over the world to become citizens, strengthening our diversity as a country. According to the Department of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship, Canada is home to people of more than 450 ethnic origins. And to fulfill my duties as a Canadian citizen. But this anniversary is also an opportunity to reflect on some of the shortcomings of the law and to hear about how Canada is addressing past harms related to it. Take, for example, the fact that some First Nations people gave up their status under the Indian Act in exchange for the so-called benefits of citizenship, including saving their children from residential schools. Or consider the internment of thousands of innocent Japanese Canadians during World War II. People who lost their homes and were relocated to the interior, where many were forced to do hard labor. In order to better understand the impact of the Canadian Citizenship Act, I'm joined by Audrey Macklin. She's a professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law. She's also the director of the Centre for Criminology and Sociolegal Studies. Let's start with, can you tell us a bit about the events that led up to the Canadian Citizenship Act? I think it's important to situate the timing of the Canadian Citizenship Act against the end of World War II. I think Canada emerged from it with a kind of invigorated sense of national identity. Mm -hmm. It's also, by coincidence or not, uh, a period of the decline of the British Empire. 1947, of course, Indian Pakistan uh, came into existence. And so I think we are seeing uh, globally a kind of emergence of national self-determination and in the Canadian case, uh, perhaps a kind of friendly separation from uh, the British Empire, the mother country of England. And consolidating that around the idea of a distinctive form of membership 
Canadian citizenship uh, as opposed to British subjecthood, I think can be viewed as a component of that or a feature of that process. Can you explain that a little bit? What did it mean to be a British subject before and after the Citizenship Act? Until Canadian citizenship emerged as a distinct legal status, the status of membership or belonging one could have throughout the British Empire was to be a British subject, that is, a subject of the monarch, in this case, Mm -hmm. the Queen. And of course, one understands that as a condition of, of inequality and literally subjecthood. To be a citizen of a country is to assume a position of, um, as it were, a a relationship between the citizen and the state that is not based on that kind of inherited monarchical inequality. Um, It is also to take a position, I suppose, as equals among other citizens within that state in their relationship to the state. So that sounds like there were some inherent hypocrisies existing in the whole idea of British subjects, especially for subjects that maybe wanted to seek something called domicile in Canada. Could you tell us a little bit about the concept of domicile? Sure. So let me back up and say, although the condition of being a subject, of course, is one of profound inequality in relation to the monarch, of which one is a subject, um, the British Empire cultivated a myth of the equality of all British subjects to one another. Um, And that was partly a political strategy of maintaining its colonial possessions under conditions, if you were, of pacification. Um, But I'll return to that in a moment. So at the time we're talking about, um, the idea of domicile was a way of recognizing how people would come to be, if I can put it, at home in their country, whether they had been, um, whether they had migrated to the country or otherwise. So to be domiciled somewhere was to have lived there long enough that it became the central place of one's life. One's life was organized around living in that place. And it was a kind of condition that you lived your way into through your practices, through being somewhere, through perhaps having a home there, having children, raising a family, uh, all one's business, personal connections being there. Uh, that would, that, those would all be pieces of evidence showing that you were domiciled somewhere. And the state would kind of have to recognize that. One of the things that was also going on in the late 19th and through the 20th century uh, in Canada was that Canada was, of course, a settler society, and literally millions of people moved from all over the world to live in Canada. Um, and some of those people were from other uh parts of the British Empire. It might be England or Scotland or uh, Ireland, but also places like South Asia, India. And it turned out, uh, and people would come, and they would be British subjects. As British subjects, they were, at least in principle, entitled, entitled to move freely within the empire. And they would come to Canada, and in principle, they could domicile themselves there and, and you know, sort of acquire a kind of permanent residence in Canada. But of course it turned out, and this is happening in the early 20th century, just at the turn of the century, that Canada in fact did not really want uh, British subjects from India. In fact, Canada was racist and didn't want people with brown skin basically. But it faced a conundrum because on the one hand, these folks were British subjects and entitled to move freely throughout British Empire on that basis. On the other hand, uh, the Canadian government 
um, still a kind of dominion uh, of uh, Britain, as it were, uh, didn't really want them. And so it devised techniques to exclude them, to prevent them from being able to enter Canada on the same terms as other people, as other British subjects. And that really is one of the important early um, uses of the term citizenship in Canadian law. In the early 1900s, Canada was a country of immigration. It wanted, needed, and facilitated mass immigration, but it didn't do, do so on an equal basis. In fact, what it really wanted were white immigrants uh, from Europe. Um, its definition of whiteness was quite narrow and excluded uh, people who were, uh, for example, from the Mediterranean re region or even people who are East European, but eventually Canada expanded its idea of, Europe, of whiteness to encompass all Europeans. Nevertheless, it did not want people who had brown skin or were um, otherwise considered non-white. So steps were taken to either restrict uh, the entry or exclude or impose burdens on people who were uh, Chinese, Japanese, uh, South Asian, or uh, black migrants. So it faced a particular challenge in doing that with those from India, because unlike all of the other groups I just described, uh, Indians were British subjects. And as British subjects, at least according to the Imperial Office in London, were equal in status to all other British subjects throughout the empire. And as such, were entitled to move freely and enter any part of the empire on the same terms and conditions as other British subjects. This posed a challenge to Canada, who wanted to encourage the migration of white British subjects from England, Ireland, Scotland, but did not want to admit British subjects with brown skin from India. So how did it manage to find a way to exclude them? So there are a couple of techniques that I'll describe. Indians were able to migrate to Canada by uh, buying a ticket on a ship owned by the Canadian Pacific Shipping Company that traveled from India to Canada, the West Coast. The Canadian government enacted a regulation called the so-called Continuous Journey Regulation that said an immigrant could only enter Canada if they arrived by a continuous journey from their place of origin meaning they could only travel via a single trip, no connecting trips, as it were. Over the years, there were various challenges to this regulation, um, and the first few of those challenges succeeded. But eventually, uh, Canada kept tinkering with its regulation to the point where it was, so to speak, watertight, and people from India could not travel continuously to Canada and were thereby excluded. This continuous journey regulation was also supported by another change to immigration law. So as we discussed earlier, Canada did not actually have a formal status of Canadian citizenship until 1947. You know, with a Canadian passport that said you're a Canadian citizen where you would describe yourself as your citizenship as Canadian and so on. Prior to that, you were a British subject of Canada. Nevertheless, in the 1910 Immigration Act, we see the introduction of the term citizen and even Canadian citizen, but its use is very narrow and specific. 
it's used in the immigration law to give the government of Canada additional powers to restrict or exclude people who were not born in Canada or already domiciled in Canada. And that's where domicile comes back into the story. And it called those people who were born in Canada or domiciled in Canada Canadian citizens. Now, as I said, there was no special status called Canadian citizenship. This only existed in the Immigration Act for the specific purpose of controlling people crossing the border. So what I'm trying to describe for you here is how in the early part of the 20th century, the, there was no legal status of Canadian citizenship, but this idea of a Canadian citizen became part of a package of policy instruments that were devised to exclude non-white British subjects from India. And here, I think what we see then is that paradoxical or contradictory feature of citizenship, that it simultaneously includes people by gathering them together and giving them this identity that they hold in common of being citizens, and its exclusionary quality its capacity to exclude people from membership, from entitlements, from entry, because they're not citizens. And the Coma Gata Maru, that was an attempt by, and, and you please correct me on this, this was an attempt by some Asian Indians or Japanese people or people from South Asia trying to circumvent some of these rules and get to Canada on their own ship. Is that accurate? The Coma Gata Maru incident represents the last attempt by Indian immigrants to Canada and frankly the people in Canada who wanted to employ them to challenge the continuous journey provision. In 1914 um, an Indian uh, businessman named Gurdit Singh uh, chartered the ship, the Komagara Maru, which had historically been used to transport immigrants from Europe, as it were, before uh, converted to this purpose. He chartered this boat and uh, he sold tickets to hundreds of Indians who were, as I said, British subjects of uh, empire, and uh, sold tickets and made their way to Canada. The boat, I think, ultimately departed from Hong Kong. And so it arrived in Canada and the uh, and the Canadian government refused to let the ship actually uh, disembark. So it was stranded in the Vancouver Harbour in 1914. And the government said, this ship did not come by a continuous journey from India, therefore the passengers aboard are inadmissible to Canada. This led to the last of several challenges to the continuous journey provision as an unlawful regulation outside the authority of the federal government or the executive, the cabinet, to enact. Um, and when it reached the British Columbia courts, this time the courts upheld the regulation. And that meant that all the passengers on the boat, stranded as they were in the harbor, um, really uh, subject to really um, conditions of, of deprivation, uh, they were not being allowed real access to the provisions they needed. 
there was hunger on board the ship, there was you know, terrible circumstances, they were effectively um, pressured to give up and to depart. They lost their court case, and uh, with that, they eventually, as it were, surrendered and were returned to India. And that was the ultimate um, triumph, if you will, of the continuous journey provision as a racist policy of exclusion from Canada. And then when they got to India, there was an attempt to arrest the group leaders, I take it? That's right. So when they returned to India, um, they were they disembarked in a location where they had to make their way a fairly long journey back to the uh, region. And a riot broke out, I believe, at a place called Budge Budge, and set, their leaders were arrested. And this, this campaign had revealed starkly what I think was already known by many in India, which was Indians were not equal subjects in the British Empire, far from it. And this really was seen to stoke the kind of uh, resistance to uh, Britain that, of course, was building in India toward um, decolonization and self-determination. And so um, the Komagadamaru incident in India became incorporated, I think, into that anti-British um, resistance that was building in India and, of course, ultimately culminated in, um, in India's independence in 1947. So 1947, when the Canadian Citizenship Act was adopted, how did it compare to other citizenship laws across the world at the time? So Canada's Citizenship Act, I think, was similar to a lot of other citizenship laws. You could acquire citizenship through three routes. The first was by being born on Canadian soil. It's called use soli. The second was being born to a Canadian citizen, citizenship by descent, or what's called use sanguinis, law of the blood. Uh, and the third is by immigrating to Canada and then naturalizing, which is a kind of <laughs> a highly a, a colorful term, if you will, um, that describes the process of acquiring citizenship uh, through um, recognition by the state, typically after demonstration of some kind of knowledge acquisition. So the Citizenship Act contained those three elements. Uh, the first of, it, of those, use soli, uh, citizenship by birth on territory, has become less common throughout the world, but Canada retains it. Um, there was no provision at the time for dual nationality, but in 1977, the Canadian Citizenship Act was amended to formally permit uh, dual nationalities without any kind of penalty. Um, Canada was, in some sense, at the forefront of that. Uh, other countries were much slower to both recognize the inevitability of multiple affiliations that lead to, to multiple citizenship and to officially sanction it. Um, under the 1947 uh, Citizenship Act, it was possible to lose your citizenship, and that could happen in a number of ways. One was if you were a uh, so-called naturalized citizen, if you left Canada and lived abroad for a very long time, you could lose your citizenship that way. And, and one has to think of that in the context of not permitting dual nationality, right? Because if you're a dual national, you can't, obviously you can't 
live in more than one country at one time. So the idea of penalizing someone from living out, for living outside the country for too long is, is something that is um, attached to the idea that you can only be a citizen of one country. You could lose your citizenship if it emerged that you had committed fraud or misrepresented something relevant in applying for citizenship. So let's say if when applying for citizenship you are asked whether you have committed a criminal offense and you say no, but it turns out after you've acquired citizenship that in fact you had been convicted of a serious criminal offense, that might be the basis for revoking your citizenship. And it was even possible then to lose citizenship for acts committed after you became a citizen, broadly speaking, kind of treason and so on. Um, by 1977, as I said, uh, the Citizenship Act was amended to um, permit dual citizenship. Uh, a revocation of citizenship for acts committed after becoming a citizen were dropped, but you could still lose your citizenship for fraud or misrepresentation in the process of becoming a citizen. Did that change in 2014 with B Bill C-24, or was that something separate? So... In 2014, the then conservative government reintroduced, reinvigorated uh, the capacity of the state to revoke somebody's citizenship for acts committed while a citizen, as it were, as I would call it for so-called crimes against citizenship. So under the 2014 statute, if you were convicted of certain crimes that were linked or identified as national security offenses, breaches of the Anti-Terrorism Act, or if you had fought for a foreign uh, army or government under certain conditions, then the government could revoke your Canadian citizenship. And this was something that the government did, you know, as part of the campaign, um, you know, the war against terror. It was clearly very directed at um, Muslims, Muslim men predominantly. Now, in the end, what happened was that uh, the Conservatives uh, lost that election. The Liberals who had, um, so had won the election uh, came to power on a campaign promise to repeal that citizenship revocation legislation, and they did. So ultimately, no citizenships were actually revoked on the basis of that law, and that law was repealed. Um, this idea of citizenship revocation for so-called crimes against citizenship is uh, very much uh, linked to uh, anti-terrorism. It's a way of turning citizens into foreigners, and it plays into a particular kind of narrative or discourse that portrays those who are considered to be implicated in so-called terrorism as essentially foreign, right? That, that really, by definition, anybody that we think is engaged in what we call terrorism, it's essentially a foreign kind of activity. And if the people who do it aren't actually foreign, that means they are actually citizens, we can't process that. So we will just turn them into foreigners so that the narrative is, mm -hmm. um, is validated. It's a kind of, that's the kind of move that citizenship revocation is. It's, of course, defended on the basis that it somehow makes countries safer, but there's really no evidence that it does that. And if you think about it for a moment, if you imagine, for example, that, um, that 
terrorism is a global problem that requires a globally coordinated solution. It's, it's apparent that if you think somebody who you think is a, a threat to national security is a danger, exporting them to another country doesn't actually uh, <laughs> make the world much safer, and indeed quite the contrary. So I'm going to switch us to a new topic within the Citizenship Act and ask how the Citizenship Act um, impacted Indigenous peoples across Canada and what is its relationship to the Indian Act? Well, that's a really interesting question. So the relationship of Indigenous peoples to citizenship is fraught. It's common for people who are not Indigenous to think of citizenship as an unqualified good. Who wouldn't want to be a citizen? Being a citizen is good, more citizenship is better. For Indigenous people, that's not the story. For Indigenous people who understood themselves as um, belonging to a community that existed prior to, the, to contact, prior to the um, formation of the Canadian state, Citizenship was a status that was created by the Canadian state into which Indigenous people were supposed to be um, assimilated or enrolled. And the way this used to work, for example, was that Indigenous people could not be considered citizens, and I mean this in the casual sense, British subjects of Canada first and then ultimately citizens, unless they gave up their Indian status. And so in order to go to university, and, and there were certain things that people with Indian status could not do, like go to university, uh, join the military, vote, um, enter certain professions. So if an Indigenous person wanted to do any of those things, they would have to give up their Indian status and the various um, entitlements and attributes that went with that in order to become what was called enfranchised. And enfranchisement then actually required a loss, uh, a surrendering, um, a withdrawal of those things connected to Indian status and, to, and indigeneity in order to be regarded as enfranchised, as a citizen of Canada. Um, so enfranchisement included vote today. You know, which is connected to the language of enfranchisement, right? So the idea is that Indigenous people, though here first, though not just born on Canadian soil, but born on Canadian soil ancestrally for thousands of years, in fact, were not considered citizens and had to be enrolled into that. Um, the Indian Act was, in a sense, the state's own little citizenship code for Indigenous membership. It was constructed by uh, the government of Canada according to its own interests, according to its own rules. It was not the rules for how one became defined as an Indian for purposes of Indian status were not derived from the rules or norms of membership of Indigenous communities themselves. And of course, there are many Indigenous nations, many Indigenous communities, each with their own ways of understanding and constituting membership. So what it meant was, if you wanted to be recognized by the state as Indian, you had to have Indian status. And those rules were about descent, about things like blood quantum, and 
they required you to get and carry around a card to prove that you were Indian. Um, and so you can understand Indian status as the state's construction of a kind of Indian citizenship or membership, but not one that was um, actually indigenous in its content or in its formation. So people were forced to give up their Indian status to do basic things of citizenry like voting. What kind of legal challenges came up when they tried to regain their Indian status because they believed their ancestors were forced into trading it? I don't know how many Indigenous people who were enfranchised were able to regain Indian status. Um, I expect that there's research on that, but I don't know the answer. I do know that a particular flashpoint was the Indian status definition of status by descent that was patrilineal. In other words, if a man with status married a woman without status, their children would have Indian status. If a, a, a woman with status married a man without status, their children would not have status. So you can see that this patriarchal approach that the Canadian government took to the transmission of Indian status uh, had a distinct and quite devastating and gendered impact both on the number of people who would be considered to hold Indian status and the consequences of that for, for example, being able to live on reserve and participate in Indigenous governance and to um, share in the um, attributes or the benefits such as they are of having Indian status. So this was you know, this be, this, the particular gendered discrimination of the Indian Act uh, started to be challenged, I think, in the 1970s. It was challenged internationally and it was challenged domestically in law. And it ultimately was understood to discriminate. But the damage done by this was such that it became highly contentious and difficult to reinstate women and their uh, children and, and grandchildren and so on back to Indian status because it had resource, uh, resource distribution implications that meant that some indigenous communities, some reserves, some status, some bands resisted it. And there, there was a lot of contestation and um, really uh, disputes within communities that I think persists until the present and was created uh, by the federal government through the Indian Act. So I think that brings us to the present. So I have to ask, what in your opinion are some things that could be improved on in the citizenship process? Well, starting at a more kind of granular level, um, the, we have a citizenship test and we have requirements for acquiring citizenship um, that have, the, have a, a differential impact on the basis of often gender and region of origin and mode of entry. And what I mean by that is that um, under the, a previous government, uh, the Canadian acquisition of Canadian citizenship became more expensive um, and there were more barriers erected in terms of proving language acquisition uh, and less discretion in relation to that. 
And one of the consequences is that it became more difficult for people who had come as refugees, people who are more often going to have experienced trauma, uh, more often might struggle with uh, learning the language, um, and similar obstacles and barriers for women who entered often as spouses in meeting the requirements for citizenship. And one can think about ways in which the naturalization process can be examined with a view to ensuring that it does not have this kind of differential and discriminatory impact. We're certainly not talking about people who aren't fulfilling the requirements of living in Canada, contributing to Canada, and commitment to Canada. So that's one area, I think, where we could improve. Canada also, in 2009, um, restricted the transmission of citizenship by descent. So after 2009, if I am born outside Canada, and I subsequently have a child born outside Canada, that child is no longer going to be a Canadian citizen. So my, as it were, my grandchild. If I'm born outside Canada, my grandchild born outside Canada will not be a Canadian citizen. That's one of the most restrictive and narrow approaches to citizenship by descent in the world. Right? It means it ends at the second generation. If you want to contrast, uh, many European countries go on for three, four, many, many generations. It's worth thinking about whether that's a good policy, given the ways in which people uh, who are in the situation I described, in fact, may well be uh, deeply connected to Canada, may in fact be living in Canada, may have spent their entire lives in Canada. So that's something to think about. Um, I think in terms of recent developments around Canadian citizenship, it's worth thinking about the ways in which we continue to discriminate against people who are non-citizens. So we can talk about how we might uh, improve or change our citizenship laws, but we can also think about simply removing or minimizing how much citizenship matters for certain things. And in this, I am reminded that uh, the Canadian government recently enacted a law uh, that effectively prevents Canadian citizens, people who are not Canadian citizens or permanent residents of Canada, um, from buying residential property, which is, I mean, it's a more complicated story than that, but um, one might ask whether these sorts of laws are appropriate, whether we want to build up distinctions between people on the basis of their status, uh, or whether we should be minimizing those kinds of uh, distinctions and opportunities for discrimination. Can you discuss one of the cases that you've worked on through the years and why they've been significant when it comes to citizenship? I've worked on two cases that bring the nexus of citizenship, securitization, and uh, Islamophobia to the fore. So let me talk about uh, each of them in turn. For several years, I was involved in the case of Omar Khadr. Omar Khadr was a Canadian citizen who was born in Ontario. Uh, that is, acquired a citizenship by what I've described as Yusolai, birth on soil. But as a child was taken to Afghanistan, and his father was involved uh, with um, Al-Qaeda. Omar Khadr, as a 15-year-old, was captured by U.S. forces on, uh, in, on an Afghanistan battlefield. Um, he was alleged to have thrown a grenade. 
before being brought to Guantanamo Bay, where he languished for many years under conditions of abuse and torture. I was, I was part of a team uh, involving his U.S. Uh, Judge Advocate General Defense Council that advocated for the Canadian government to protect one of its citizens, Omar Khadr, from profound and severe human rights violations by another country, the United States. We were asking Canada to fulfill one of the most basic duties that a state has, which is to protect its citizens. Instead, the Canadian government chose to view Omar Khadr through the lens that the U.S. government framed him, which is uh, an unlawful combatant, a, a, a legal category that doesn't actually exist in law and was invented by the United States. But, but what Canada did was, instead of protecting Omar Khadr, uh, asking for his repatriation, as other countries successfully did with their nationals, they instead chose to go down to the United States, exploit the opportunity to further interrogate him and participate in the abuse of his human rights. Um, eventually, and only at the instigation of the United States, did Canada repatriate Omar Khadr. Um, and I think this stands as a deplorable but vivid example of how the status of somebody as a citizen does not fully account for the inequality among citizens as citizens. That in some sense, Omar Khadr, though he is, he was, and he is a Canadian citizen, was somehow regarded as not genuinely Canadian, not Canadian enough, not just a citizen who might, may or may not have behaved badly, like many people do when they commit criminal offenses. Not a bad citizen, but not a citizen. That's how he was treated. And this is, of course, before we actually had a law about revocation of citizenship. In effect, what we see here is a kind of repudiation of the citizen. And obviously, this had everything to do with um, his... Uh, his family connections, his identity as Muslim, his youth, his gender, and so on. Turning to Zunera Ishak, in, uh, under a previous conservative government, and as part of this larger uh, process of securitization that affected predominantly uh, Muslims, the Canadian government uh, adopted a policy that said one could not swear the citizenship oath with one's face covered. Now, it turns out that, of course, who at the time was covering their face? Well, women who wear, wear niqabs. So really, the goal of this policy was to prevent women who wear niqabs, namely certain Muslim women, from becoming Canadian citizens. Again, a pretty vivid example of, um, of racism in um, our uh, citizenship policy. Um, you know, it's ironic, I think, to look back on this now and to think about how the fact that one covers one's face was seen as either a sign of uh, oppression, that one is oppressed as a Muslim woman, or a sign of weaponization, a sign of radicalization. Either way, uh, Muslim women then became this kind of symbol of all that is wrong with some vision of Islam as um, a a faith that is both um, radical, extremist, and discriminates against women, misogynistic. Zanera Ishak herself 
was a woman with considerable fortitude and challenged the policy as contrary to Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And by coincidence, um, her litigation unfolded at a moment that was coincident with the federal election. The court said that the government policy was unlawful. The government did not, in fact, have authority to proclaim that women who covered their faces could not swear the citizenship oath. Zunaira Ishak swore the citizenship oath with her wearing her niqab. She became a Canadian citizen and was able to vote in that 2015 election. I would just add, just for what it's worth, that to the extent that this law was, or this policy was defended on the basis of vague security-related risks, it's important to realize that, of course, there was no doubt that Zunaira Ishak's identity could be confirmed prior to her swearing the citizenship oath, and nobody really ever explained why anybody would want to pretend to be somebody else and disguise themselves under a kneecap to swear the citizenship oath anyway. So the whole thing was quite uh, absurd. It was an exercise in political theater uh, from beginning to end by the government. But um, it was surprising how much uh, mileage it got and how it seemed to touch a nerve. Uh, but in the end, I think, you know, looking back on it after years of people wearing masks that cover their faces, I hope that it can be appreciated um, for it, the full absurdity uh, that it is. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us, Audrey. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Canadian Time Machine, funded by the Government of Canada and created by the Walrus Lab. This episode was produced by Carol Rolando, edited by Andre Pru, and Amanda Capito is the executive producer. In the next episode, we'll dive into the 50th anniversary of the Ugandan Asian resettlement. In it was a very, um, it was very disorienting um, in some ways. Uh, we were living in this big house in Kampala and. And then we were, you know, on in, in travel mode for some months until we arrived in Vancouver. And then we were living in a, in a one-bedroom, you know, motor inn. That's next time on Canadian Time Machine. For more stories about historic Canadian milestones, visit thewalrus.ca slash Canadian Heritage.